At the beginning of 2020, the UAE faced a conundrum. Abu Dhabi ports were seeking to boost its cargo handling capacity, which meant more construction above and below water. A new project with Etihad Rail also planned to connect Khalifa Port with the proposed national railway that would run through the country. But the port's officials were sure they didn't want to damage the environment. And the Abu Dhabi shoreline is home to the Ras Ganada Reef, home to 8 million corals. You're listening to Beyond the Headlines. I'm your host, Sohail Akram. And this week, we're looking at how the UAE moved an entire coral reef. In March 2020, an ecological survey was carried out and 500 healthy corals were found to be situated along the proposed section of the Abu Dhabi coastline. Although the coral reefs in the UAE are considered to be some of the most robust in the world due to their ability to withstand high temperatures, the infrastructure needed could not be built without threatening the reef's existence. And then in May 2020, the Environment Agency in Abu Dhabi approved a promising project, one which would require expert planning, knowledge and research. A project to move all 500 corals to a safe location. So coral reef and, and other marine relocation programs have taken place in the region before, obviously internationally, but never to this kind of detail. So yes, we were aware of this kind of program. And as I'm sure you're aware, you know, the, uh, the, the Khalifa port itself has been built next to Ras al-Gadana, uh, a, a huge, very important reef the region, not just the UAE. So since the inception and the creation of Khalifa Port, we've been very, very conscious of our uh, marine environment around us. And as such, we uh, you know, are very protective of that. That was David Gatwood, the Chief Engineering and Technical Services Officer at Abu Dhabi Ports. Khalifa Port was opened in December 2012. It was built three kilometers offshore because of the presence of the Ras Ganada Coral Reef. When the proposal to move the reef was put forward, David knew that he needed expert help. Although we have a degree of environmental engineering awareness, we're by no means the experts. So at an early stage, again, with the environmental agency, we realized that there was a, a need to reach out to third-party specialists. And because of the nature of the work and the scale of it, we thought, well, let, let's collaborate with you know, some of the best people in the world. And that's when we reached out to New York University, to uh, Professor John there, And we have our, our other uh, consultancies, GHT, and they added a layer of, of international expertise and best-in-class study and research. And again, when we reached out to them, they were, they were exceptionally excited to work with us because we, we kind of have all the, this was an opportunity for them to gather data and to do some research that otherwise they wouldn't have been able to do. Professor John Bird is a marine biologist. He works at the New York University in Abu Dhabi as the Program Head of Environmental Studies and an Associate Professor of Biology. He weighs in. So coral relocation projects are typically done on scales of tens of meters to hundreds of meters. Um, the largest that I'm aware of was 10,000 coral colonies that was actually um, uh, moved here in the UAE from the Dubai dry docks out to um, the world in Dubai as a mitigation exercise when they were developing a, uh, expanding the port next to the Dubai dry docks. Um, so these projects are typically small in scale um, and localized in terms of their impacts. And so in terms of the global change that's going on, they're not going to um, uh, prevent what's going on with global climate change. What they can do is conserve the local um, coral reef communities that we have in place and, and maintain them going forward. 
So we as a species um, are coastal. Um, roughly 50% of the world's population lives within 100 kilometers of a coast, and two-thirds of the world's megacities are built on coasts. And so humanity is not going to stop developing things like desalination facilities, power facilities, ports, and so on. This infrastructure is going to continue going in place. And so what the purpose of this project is, is to develop some good science around coral relocation processes in order to optimize them going forward. Um, what's happened in the past is often that um, coral relocation exercises have been um, sort of done willy-nilly. Um, people have been going out and removing corals and moving them to other places without really thinking about the processes that are going in place, which species they're using, what depth they're putting them at, how they're being attached, and various other factors, all of which are incredibly important in terms of whether these corals that are being relocated will survive long-term. And so what we're trying to do with this project is basically optimize coral relocation processes based on the best available science. And in doing this, we hope to gain some data that we can then use to inform future projects that are going on around the Gulf. This is a process that is going on uh, increasingly around the Gulf in terms of mitigation exercises related to development. And so by optimizing these processes, we hope to be able to support the sustainability of future development projects in the region. As Professor Bird mentioned, coral reef relocation is not a new phenomenon. Interest in saving reefs dates back decades to when recreational scuba diving started to slowly gain popularity in the late 1960s. The Save the Barrier Reef movement in Australia started at that time to tackle the threat of mining. The idea of relocating reefs to prevent damage was not far behind. So coral relocation actually started as a, for experimental purposes in the early 1970s by reef scientists. And it wasn't until the late 1970s that it was actually applied as sort of a compensation or mitigation measure um, for development. So the, the first example that I'm aware of occurred in the U.S. where they were building a port that was going to damage some uh, coral reefs. And so they did a small project there to relocate some of the corals from the areas that were going to be impacted to an area that was... Uh, benign and away from development. Since that time, the understanding of the importance of coral reefs has grown immensely. So coral reefs are under increasing pressure across the globe, and there's increasing recognition from the regulatory authorities that these are an important ecosystem. So, for example, they support fisheries, which is the second most economically important resource sector after oil here in the Arabian Gulf. Um, They also provide benefits in terms of ecotourism, for example, your snorkelers and scuba divers that come down and go diving on Sadiat Reef and so on. And so they have high economic value, but they're also important in terms of their biodiversity. Um, They only cover about 1% of the ocean seafloor, but they contain 25% of all of the world's marine species. Um, And here in the Gulf, coral reefs are by far the most biodiverse ecosystem that we have in place. And so there's a growing recognition among scientists, regulators, and developers themselves that we need to conserve and protect these important natural assets. And so... Projects such as the one being done by Abu Dhabi Ports are uh, ideal in that they're trying to combine a combination of good science, the regulatory management uh, framework that they're working within, as well as their own vision of sustainability and trying to combine all of the best practices that we know of today to try and conserve these important ecosystems. Conservation takes many forms. There are a host of projects and research into how to prevent coral bleaching, awareness campaigns to prevent physical destruction, pollution, and overfishing. So across the globe, uh, it's estimated that we've lost around 20% of the world's coral reefs over the last three decades. 
And this comes down to a couple of different uh, processes. Uh, the big one that's going on today and is projected to be the most impactful in the coming three decades is climate change, mainly related to um, increasing sea surface temperatures, but also ocean acidification in some places. Um, but you also have overlaid on that global sort of picture, you have localized issues in terms of uh, it could be um, pollution or development, um, destructive ha uh, fishing practices, and so on. So these localized pressures are adding on to the global pressures to impact reefs uh, around the world. Coral reefs are an important ocean habitat and are often called the rainforests of the seas. Scientists estimate that 25% of all marine species live in and around coral reefs, making them one of the most diverse habitats in the world. But with rising damage to reefs globally, Many attempts have been made to counteract this, some useful and others bordering on failure, like the one that took place in the United States in the 1970s. It relied on vehicle tires. A group of fishermen thought relocating old tires to the ocean off the coast of Florida would be the ideal potential home for corals. But a lack of understanding and prior research meant this project failed miserably. Tires were found to be unstable. Tires that were not secured well enough became a danger to nearby coral and sea life. But Florida wasn't the only victim. A similar project was launched in France in the 1980s when 25,000 tires were sunk in the French Riviera. The tires were found to be spreading toxic chemicals and killing fish. Expensive operations since the early 2000s have been underway to undo this damage. But some artificial reefs have been successful. There's two types of artificial reefs, which are generally described as ones that are purpose-built. So these would be things like your reef balls, um, eco-reefs, and so on. So these are commercial products that are designed to enhance biodiversity in a certain area, um, as well as non-purpose-built artificial reefs. For example, breakwaters. So if you take the Khalifa port breakwater, it has a large breakwater next to it that's called the environmental breakwater that's basically put there to protect the huge Rasganada reef that's right next to it. Um, for many potential impacts from, say, the shipping channels. Um, and that breakwater itself has very high diversity of corals on it, very high diversity of fishes. Um, and so it in itself uh, does act as a large-scale artificial reef, similar in terms of ecological function to what you get on traditional artificial reefs, planned artificial reefs. Artificial reefs themselves do differ from relocated reefs, and that relocated reefs are typically done for the purposes of uh, mitigation. So there's some sort of um, development activity that's going to happen. So we're building ports, we're building channels around the world, and this sometimes occurs in areas where you can't get away from impacting coral reefs or other ecosystems. And in those cases, the regulators will often request that you do some sort of compensation or mitigation exercise to relocate those corals out of the areas where they would have been damaged and put them in an area where they'll go undamaged. So artificial reefs and relocated reefs are ecologically important in their own right, uh, but differ from one another. So artificial reefs are uh, designed for all sorts of different purposes. So they were actually first uh, developed in Japan in the 1970s for the purposes of reducing trawling damage. So when people are dragging trawling materials along the bottom, it can damage ecosystems. And so Japan, the government there, actually put these in place to stop trawlers from going into areas that they consider critically important. But traditionally around here, they're typically done to aggregate fishes, either for fishing activities. So we have um, information going back at least three centuries describing artificial reefs uh, here in the Arabian Gulf region being built out of palm fronds and piles of uh, material coming from the land. 
um, mainly again to aggregate fishes for fishing purposes. Um, and often nowadays that they're done for ecotourism purposes to uh, provide uh, an area that's attractive to divers and, and tourists that are coming in and on snorkels. The appeal of reefs can sometimes be part of the problem. Coral reefs are very fragile. The underwater ecosystem contains a plethora of marine life and is built around various types of corals, living, breathing animals that can be damaged by the touch of a human. So how do you go about moving the whole coral reef? Here's Professor John Bird again. The project that we're doing is actually exploring a couple of different aspects of coral relocation. So we're looking um, both in terms of the uh, types of species that we're moving, how they're being attached. So we're trying a combination of different attachment techniques because we know from earlier research that's been done in other parts of the world that how corals are reattached when they're put in the relocation site can have incredible impact on whether or not they survive over the long term. Because if they detach after a couple of months, Um, from whatever substrate you put them on, then they're not going to survive. Um, We're also looking at the depth where we're putting them, because if you put the corals at shallow depth versus deep depth, that can have an impact on how much light they're exposed to. And these are a photosynthetic organism, so they need light. But at the same time, it also exposes them to differences in temperature. And so that can have an effect on them. Um, So this project has been going on since last July, um, and we've been monitoring it. Initially, we did it extremely frequently. So during the construction phase itself, after two weeks, four weeks, six weeks, eight weeks, and so on, um, and continuing today, our next um, monitoring event is occurring in March. uh, And we're tracking the survivorship and health of these corals as we go forward. The public uh, knowledge of coral relocation is actually quite limited. So most people assume that you're going out there with a hammer and a chisel and you're cracking a coral off of the bottom and you're sticking it in a bucket and moving it somewhere else and reattaching it somehow. Um, But it's actually a much more delicate process than that. So coral itself is actually a big rock of skeleton with only about a millimeter or two on the surface of it where you can see the color that's actually alive. And if you touch that with your finger, that area where you've touched it with your finger is most likely heavily damaged and potentially will die off. And so relocating corals is not an easy process. You have to be incredibly sensitive to the coral itself. And so you have to go down and remove it from below without actually touching the upper surface that's the photosynthetic surface. Um, And when you remove it, you have to put it into baskets using something like a bubble wrap or some sort of sheeting to keep them from rubbing into each other or into the sides of the the unit that you're using to carry them. And you're doing this in many cases with thousands of corals, sometimes tens of thousands of corals, um, and relocating them often distances of several kilometers. And so you have to bring them up, take them out of the water, keep them moist, keep them uh, cool, move them to another location, then attach them all while trying not to touch them. And so this is a much more complicated process than most people actually envision when they picture what's going on, which is why we see when these are not done properly, you can see very high um, mortality rates. I've seen projects done here in the Gulf with people who assumed that this was an easy process, having mortality rates of upwards of 70% of the corals that they had moved because they'd moved them to locations that were not appropriate for corals because of sediments or temperatures, perhaps because they had been attaching them by holding on to the top of the coral itself, etc., And so, again, the the purpose of this project is really to try and gain insights in how we can do this best. What are the approaches that we can use to enhance coral survival for the long term? So not one or two weeks after we relocate them, but three plus years after they've been relocated in order to develop a a system that's um, sort of comparable to what they were in their initial state. Now that the coral reef has been moved, it will be monitored for the next three years 
and the research and findings will be available to future projects of this kind. Professor John says he has learned a lot from the last year as he balanced the best practices for this mammoth task at hand. There are some people who talk about uh, using approaches such as using uh, an electrical signal, putting through those through the coral to enhance the calcification. Um, these are techniques that I'm personally, as a biologist, not uh, supportive of. Um, they're highly cost-intensive. They require a lot of uh, human labor. And the data on their success, to my awareness, has not shown that they're beneficial in the long run. And so I think the most important thing is that a lot of planning goes in uh, before the coral relocation exercise goes in effect in the first place. So choosing the right location, choosing the depth that you're going to put them at, how they're going to be attached, all of these are critical things that need to be thought through before you actually even start the project. And then once the project started, getting them moved as quickly as possible with as minimal impact to the corals themselves as possible and getting them back in the water and reattached quickly um, seems to be the approach that enhances the survivorship the most. Although Professor John and David have an obvious interest in the results, there's also attention from around the region. The Arabian Gulf um, is an interesting area for this sort of project because we do have uh, extremely hardy, very environmentally robust corals here in the UAE. Um, we get the world's hottest sea temperatures every single summer. And so my lab, for example, uses the Arabian Gulf as a natural laboratory to understand how corals cope with things like climate change. So for us, they're a scientifically very important natural asset. And so we are really heartened when we learn of groups like Abu Dhabi Ports trying to use the best available science to conserve these important uh, ecosystems. Um, I do think that the Arabian Gulf has advantages in terms of um, what goes on in terms of development here. We have a population growth rate that's nearly double the global average. And as a result, we have increasing urbanization along our coastlines around the Gulf. And as a consequence of the increasing um, sustainability push that's coming from the governments, we are seeing more and more coral relocation projects occur here in Qatar and Saudi Arabia and the other neighboring countries. And so by developing processes that will optimize the survivorship of corals and enhance their survival going forward, the goal of this project is to basically take the knowledge that we develop here and use it to inform future projects that are going on around the Gulf. And given the uh, scale of development that has occurred here in the Gulf in the past and will continue it for the next couple of years, um, I see this as being very insightful for providing useful information for scientists and managers uh, elsewhere in the globe. As countries expand trade and shipping, there will be increasing pressure on governments and companies to balance profit with a sustainable environment. And projects like this one by Abu Dhabi Ports showcases the two can go hand in hand. So there's both policy level um, decision making that has to happen uh, at the government level, but there's also individual choice. Um, you know, we as individuals make decisions as managers of ports, as boat owners, as scuba divers and so on um, in terms of what's going to happen in the marine environment. And so we as individuals can make these choices to try and um, enhance or, or maintain the amount of biodiversity that we have out there in the natural systems. You've been listening to Beyond the Headlines. I've been your host, Sohail Akram. Thanks this week to Professor John Bird and David Catwood. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe by clicking the button in your favorite podcasting app. And if you have time, we would really appreciate a review. This week's episode was produced by Aisha Khan and Arthur Edison.